Since starting 40 Minute Mentor, I've spoken to so many mission-driven founders who have shown that business truly can be a force for good. And that's why I'm super excited to bring this special compilation of my favorite moments from chats with incredible purpose-driven leaders. In this episode, you'll hear from a range of people who are making a positive difference in a variety of ways. They include Tessa Clark, the CEO of the food sharing app Olio, Alex Stephanie, who's tackling homelessness through Beam, who JBM are very proud to partner with, the founder of the One Billion Happy Movement, Mo Gaudat, and JBM's board advisor, Cressy Westling CBE from Elvis and Cressy, who turn waste products into luxury goods and give half their profits back to charity. And that's just a snippet of the amazing guests in this episode. So whether you run your own social enterprise, are thinking about starting a mission-driven business, or you just need some added inspiration, I hope you'll love this truly compelling collection of leaders who are making a real positive impact on the world. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special 40-Minute Mentor Roundup episode. Alex Stephanie had already had a huge track record of success in the sharing economy when he was inspired to launch Beam. Here he discusses the origins of the world's first online platform that crowdfunds employment training for homeless people. I want to come on to talk about Beam, which you founded in 2017. And for those that don't know, it's a crowdfunding platform that helps people from disadvantaged backgrounds train up and get into work. What inspired you to set up Beam? Well, a few years ago, I got to know this homeless man who would sit day after day on the steps of my local tube station, an Irish man in his mid-40s. I remember the first time we spoke, he told me that uh, he would sit on these steps because there was a CCTV camera above and that made it less likely that he'll be attacked. And um, yeah, we got to know each other over a period of a few months and I would buy him cups of coffee, I'd buy him uh, thermal socks when it was getting cold. And um, one of the things that, that really struck me was that he told me he kind of hadn't really ever been in work. Like he'd sort of spent his entire life drifting and, and, and out of work. That just struck me as so sad because he was a kind of nice guy who, who had stuff to offer. And then he disappeared for about seven or eight weeks. And um, eventually he reappeared and I went up to him and he looked really different. So his beard was gone and he looked way older and he looked terrible. He looked like 10 or 15 years old. And I went up to him and I said, where have you been? What's happened? And he said, I've uh, been in hospital, had a heart attack. So we spoke and then I walked home and when I was walking home, I was just thinking, this is just terrible. Like I've been trying to help this guy, probably other people have as well, but he's in a much worse position than when we first met. You know, what could I have done to have actually made a meaningful difference to this person's life? For me, the answer was actually fairly clear. It was giving this person the skills, the training, the confidence so he could support himself. So he could buy himself coffees, socks, and the hundred other things that we all need. Now, sure, that's going to cost more than a cup of coffee, but what if we all chip in? Why couldn't we just crowdfund training? for people like him that they could use to support themselves. Brilliant idea. So that was the initial idea. I'd had that experience of crowdfunding back at Just Park. So, you know, then we'd raised 5 million euros through crowdfunding. I thought, well, surely we can crowdfund a few thousand pounds. So I didn't know a whole lot about homelessness, but I went and I started Googling and I started meeting as many people who'd experienced the problem. And I met as many people as I could in charities from sort of chief execs to caseworkers. And I basically pitched them on this idea. And I said, look, I'm not from this world. The last thing I want to do is make anyone's life worse. 
But if you think there's something in this, let's give it a go. And a few of those charities were really excited. And the next thing I knew, I was sat in a homeless hostel in South London with a guy called Tony, who'd had a pretty complex life. He'd spent quite a lot of his life um, in prison. He'd been addicted to substances. He'd been an alcoholic. But he was an absolutely lovely guy. And this guy wanted to become an electrician, but he couldn't afford the training. So we spoke and I explained how this would work. He was very quiet in that meeting, apart from one time. He said to me, can I ask a question? And I said, of course you can, Tony. You can ask me anything that you, that you want. He said, I don't understand. What don't you understand, Tony? He says, I don't understand. Why would anyone help me? So I basically say, I don't know if they will. I don't know if they will. I cannot promise that, but I think people care. And I think we're going to see that. So you kind of trust me enough to give this a go. And me and my friend Julian, who's our head of engineering, we build a basic website. And I then sort of phone some journalists. And it turns out that people are interested in the story of people like Tony. And it's one of the main stories on Sky News, on BBC News. It's covered by easily 20 publications around the world. We crowdfund Tony's electrician training. He goes to his college. He gets his City and Guild Fantastic. certificate. Today, he's working as an electrician on a commercial building site in London. He's in his own place. He's earning good money. His relationship with his friends and family are transformed, as is his life. That's amazing. And what we do at Beam is essentially build technology and an operational model that is allowing us to scale that. And we now have a website at beam.org. I hope if you're listening to this, just get Definitely it open on your browser out, right yeah. now. And they will see people who are referred to Beam from homeless charities and local authorities. We give them a support specialist, an employee of Beam, who does two things. One, builds a kind of risk plan for them. So we think about the risks in their life and how we manage them. And two, builds a personalized career plan. Could be anything from becoming a bricklayer to an accountant. And then the public comes and funds those individuals or funds all of those individuals. You can sort of split your donation across every life campaign. And then we support them through the training and into work. And it's a model that's really working. It's wonderful. So more than 80% of people who've been through the model have started work in their chosen career. And, um, you know, this is like Tony, it's a hard to help group. And a lot of these people have been out of work for years, um, sometimes decades, sometimes they've never had a job in their, in their entire adult lives. So we think this is a model that works because it's really crowdsourcing support. You know, on the one hand, it's about removing financial barriers. But on the other hand, in a way much more powerfully, it's about actually creating a kind of social contract between one person and a couple of hundred strangers who actually are saying, I back you. I'm going to back you with two pounds or 20 pounds or whatever it is. And that's really, really transformative and really confidence building for that individual. That individual wants to repay the trust that those people have put in him. And I think that's fundamentally why we're saying that this model is having so much more power than a more traditional model. It's about really building this entire new support network around an individual. Condiments with a conscience is how Jenny Costa brilliantly describes the concept of rubies in the rubble. Listen to find out how she turns unwanted fruit and veg into delicious dips, chutneys and sauces. So when we started, I started going along to wholesale large fruit and veg markets in London and they ran from around midnight till 6am. And speaking to City of London and they kept saying, we've got around 
30 to 40 tons every year that we're discarding on these markets. And a lot of it is because it's going to retailers and they want to know that they've got on their mangoes, for example, a five to 10 day life to sit on their shop shelf before selling and going into the consumer's home. And supermarkets will be around 20 to 25 days life. Uh, And they kept saying, we know that there's a lot of good produce that's being discarded, but we need to do something with it that day. And so they supported us in putting a kitchen on site. And it was interesting. We had a lot of support from big organizations that saw the problem. So supermarkets, farmers, the city of London, markets. But the, the general consumer on the street, you're right, it was such a hippie notion at the time. It was sort of bin, the, the, article, the first article I ever read about food waste was about bin divers. And it struck me, I got so excited because it made me think about the food supply chain and thinking you've got unpredictable weather creating food on one end. And then the other side, you've got unpredictable humans deciding what they're going to eat for dinner at 4 p.m. And bang in the middle, supermarkets providing everything in ample and with food being perishable, what happens to the, the imbalance? So it was with bin divers that made me start thinking, huh, like, why is this that's so much waste? So it was a really hippie notion. Um, when we first started at Borough Market, I actually never used to tell people the story. I had one liner on the back saying, waste not, want not, in the back of the jar. But I was so strong on thinking, if this is going to be a successful business, our products have to be banging. You can't sell a product on the story. First and foremost, I create food, and it's got to be first in class. It's got to win awards. It's got to taste better than anything else on the shelf. And so our main thing was just, and that was what was great with being on the markets as well, as you're watching people tasting it, you're hearing their feedback the next week when they came back and they tried it with different things. We were constantly adjusting different flavors as well. So it was really a test bed, um, but it was very much about we're going to make really good tasting food. Our backstory is our purpose, really. Your reason for buying it is probably, predominantly, it's got to be the taste for buying it regularly. And then the backstory, hopefully you'll fall in love with the story. And it was only until 2013, Tesco's released their food waste figures in all the newspapers. Everyone went berserk. Food waste started to hit the headlines. And then we became a little bit more vocal. And now we are a lot more vocal and packed. Great, as you should be. <laughs> That's great. Well, you've gone, you've had this incredible story from, from markets to the Winborough market to stocking your products in some of the most well-known retailers there are. I guess it would be lovely for our, our listeners to hear a bit about that evolution of the business of Rubies and the Rubble from those early days and some of the challenges that you've had to overcome to get to where you are now. So our main challenges have been on the production side, oddly, not so much the sales side. We've been really fortunate because food waste has been on a bit of a wave. And, and when these, when it started to hit the headlines in 2013, Waitrose got in touch with us. Tesco's got in touch with us saying that we've got to have your products. We were never going to, we, we and still aren't really with, with our traditional range. We were never the right price point for a Tesco's or had the, the ability to scale up fast. Um, so we started with Waitrose. They helped us putting even barcodes on our products and, and scaled us in eight stores, 16 stores, 24, 200. And it grew with Waitrose. Yeah, we had a really interesting, I mean, from from the sales side of it, we had to, like, Eat came and touch, got in touch with us. So we did all of their onion chutneys and their sandwiches. Then Virgin came, got in touch and said, we have waste apples. And we thought, that's going to be a tiny amount. Like, why, don't you collect, why don't you check how many you've got and they we collected them all for three months on their trains and came back and said every week we've got around 2,000 apples we're wasting. And they were amazing that they were approaching us saying we've got to solve this problem. We do 92 journeys up and down from Glasgow to London every day and there's going to be waste either end. 
And so we trained the train managers to put back the apples that were good. And then when they got a ton down at Euston, which is about every 10 days, we turn it into what we, we, we made a recipe called the West Coast Apple Chutney, which is now in all of their standard cheese sandwiches on their trains and mm-hmm. on first class. And, and it's all a co-branded. It's, it's a lovely sort of, it's a really nice circular project that we did with them. But we had a lot of companies getting in touch. Marriott have always been a fantastic customer. And most of our sales is actually in out of homes. It's in the restaurant side, just because the volume was a lot bigger. But it's just been recently that we've launched, we launched a plant-based mayo range last year, mainly because I realized I was brought up on chutneys and relishes. My mum used to make them from anything we had left over in the garden. And I assumed, and I love them. We never had ketchups and things when I was growing up. And just assumed everyone else is going to love them. You're missing out. Like, I'm going to convert everyone. And then realized no one is going to switch over. People were always like, I love what you guys do as a brand, but I never eat chutney. Like, (laughs) what do I do with that? So we realized that to hit our target audience, we needed to make products that they were eating every day. Um, So the the plant-based mayo was a great success. We launched that with Honest Burger, Eat, and Sainsbury's and Planet Organic and Whole Foods. That was last year, um, and it's just been growing ever since. And then this year, we're really excited to be launching into the ketchup market, which I've been dying to get into for a while, but terrified at the same time. And you kindly brought me some, and I can't wait to try it. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for you to try it. We've, we've spent a year and a half, we've teamed up with the second largest ketchup manufacturer in Europe. I spent a year and a half developing the flavor to taste like the nation's favorite, but we've substituted the two biggest ingredients, which is water and sugar, for surplus pears. So it's from a cooperative of pear farmers, and we've made a really high concentrate of pear puree. And I think it's fantastic. Wow. But um, yeah, give it a go. And I love the fact you call it condiments with a conscience. And I, I hope <laughs> everyone will go and put their standard ketchup down and, and get this, because it looks fantastic. <laughs> Back in 2014, Tessa Clark spied a gap in the market for a free food sharing app. But how could she scale it up to make a real difference with zero budget? Find out how her great idea has become the global success story that is Olio. Still, every single day brings a, a whole slew of challenges. But the, some of the challenges in the early days, the first one was how do you grow with no budget? Yeah. And um, Olio was definitely always going to be a model that needs to kind of get to scale as quickly as possible. And our solution to that was our ambassador program. And so very early on, people reached out to us to say, I love what you're doing. Can I help? And so myself and Sasha, we did phone calls, probably the first 200 people who contacted us just to wow. almost co-create with them to figure out how they could help. And as a result mm. of that, we developed our ambassador program, which now is all kind of fully automated. Uh, and we have over 50,000 people who have reached wow. out to be part of our ambassador program. And as a result of those people, today, a quarter of all Olio sharing that's taking place each week is taking place outside of the UK, with our most active markets being Mexico and Singapore and New Zealand, yeah. places like that. So real learning there around just harnessing, especially if you're a mission-based business, don't mm. sort of be afraid of other people. You know, with my Dyson hat on, actually, I can remember thinking, oh gosh, you know, what happens if these people kind of ruin our brand or do something yeah. we wouldn't want? And I just realized that's just a ridiculous way to think about it. Like 99% of the time, people will get it right. And occasionally yeah. they'll do something that I wouldn't like to see them do, but we'll sort of cross that bridge when we get to it. So um, that was a really important 
problem and solution. And then the other challenge that we had actually, which was almost a harder one to overcome, was the fact that our early adopters hated food waste. Therefore, they didn't generate any food waste. That's an interesting problem. Yep. So, and then um, the businesses that we had hoped in the early days would use the Olio app were far too busy you know, the cafes and bakeries and delis, far too busy running their day-to-day business to bother putting food uh, on yeah. the Olio app. And so a food sharing app with no food, as I'm sure you can imagine, is not a particularly uh, successful proposition. So how we solved that problem was we said, well, why don't we take the early adopters who hate food waste but don't have any and match them up with the businesses who have loads of food waste but no time and we developed our Food Waste Heroes program. And so today we now have over 10,000 trained volunteers who are matched up to their local businesses. And those volunteers on a allotted day and time will collect the unsold food from that business, take it home, add it to the app and redistribute it to their local community. And that then has enabled us to kind of kickstart. So we've realized we're building a two-sided marketplace. For us, supply is always king. Supply is our constraint. Mm. And so the Food Waste Heroes program allows us to inject supply into our two-sided marketplace um, right across the country. And so that has worked so really well for us in those early days to deal with that challenge around our early adopters just being quite a different profile to what a mainstream audience is. Amazing. I absolutely love that. And uh, I think in this time, more than ever, where, where so many people during this climate are struggling for food and food banks kind of being overrun. And it's so great to hear that in action and happening and so many willing participants. And I also, I, I love that piece around the ambassadors. Um, JBMs actually has an ambassador program that we set up a couple of years ago. And um, I think it's that sense of community, bringing people on that journey and, you know, people that are driven by the same sort of mission. It's such a powerful tool and you know all the social media stuff's great and all the marketing's great but nothing beats the power of word of mouth in my opinion so i think that's fantastic completely completely agree with you community is at the heart of everything that we do and what we've realized is that whilst in this day and age we are theoretically more connected than we've ever been we're actually lonelier Mm. than we've ever been so there are nine million people in the uk who say that they are always or often lonely and what Olio is doing is, is sort of directly tackling that by connecting people with their local community. And that's what gives it all meaning and purpose and joy. And that's what makes our community so passionate about, about what they're doing. Crossy Westling CBE is on a mission to stop the nation's landfills from overflowing by making luxury goods out of reclaimed material. Here she lifts the lid on how her award-winning business, Elvis and Cressy, began with a pile of unwanted fire hoses. I came to the UK in 2004 and I was really interested in understanding the way this country worked. You know, when you grow up in Canada, you understand how Canada works in certain ways. And I've always loved things like power stations and landfill sites and sewage treatment plants because that's where you kind of see the guts of society, how it functions. And this was a time you got to really cast your mind back to 2004. The internet really didn't deliver you everything. You couldn't go onto Google and get the Office of National Statistics data on British waste. You had to go to the British Library. You had to talk to a librarian. You had to have, you had to sort of leaf through hours and hours of, of reports. And what I discovered was that in that year, 2004, the UK was going to landfill 100 million tons of waste. So this was a figure that just hit me like a ton of bricks, particularly because I thought, you know, I came from Hong Kong where half of their sewage at the time went into the sea untreated, where there was no recycling almost at all, except for a few small, tiny micro initiatives. And I thought coming 
to the UK, I was going to find that it was just so much more advanced than that. And what I found that at the time, the UK was kind of at the bottom of the European pile. And how dare a small, tiny island nation with no hinterland and no away be reliant on landfill? Particularly a country that sort of prides itself on creativity, because it's really not creative to just go, well, let's bury it. You know, it's a very depressing thing. So I discover this 100 million tons. Then I start, because 100 million tons means nothing to anyone. So I started going to landfill sites to discover what this looked like. And I expected to see the domestic refuse, you know, the, the black bin bags and the tennis rackets and the nappies. I expected that. What I didn't expect was all of this commercial waste, truck after truck after truck of single waste streams to be coming in. Just because, again, they lacked the kind of creativity to challenge themselves and say, really, should we be throwing this away? Or could there be another use for it? You know, we had something... I think at the time or just after that, something formed called the National Industrial Symbiosis Program, which was supposed to get these companies to work together. But of course, you know, it failed. But w what I thought was, I can't solve a hundred million ton problem. I can solve one of these problems. And the problem I fell in love with was London's fire hoses. And I didn't care what I was going to do with it. I just cared that it not go to landfill anymore. So I started bringing it home to our house, Sharon Brixton, and that made me massively popular with Elvis and all of our housemates who thought it was very, very odd hobby to take up. It's, it's, your passion for waste is unique, but I know it's the genesis of what has become an incredible story and an incredible business. I know your first big order came about in an interesting way, and I think it's, there's probably many learnings there for someone looking to launch their business. Can you share how that came about and how you used that or, or what you learned from that first order to help you grow your business? We were playing with the hose. At this point, it was we because... I was always pestering Elvis to help me with this waste problem. And we had tried quite a few things. You know, we tried making roof tiles and that failed for quite a few reasons. We tried making furniture and that failed for quite a few other reasons. But we had worked out, or Elvis was in the process of working out how to make a belt. So he was literally making the first belt. And I got a phone call asking if I could basically turn Wembley green for the day. And they were going to put on this, Al Gore was doing this series of global concerts and they were to raise money for climate change and other green initiatives. And could we somehow make Wembley live up to the standard of the ethics of the concert? Well, no, you couldn't because I couldn't go in and change the toilet paper for a day and change all the F and B for a day. That's impossible because there are, you know, decade long contracts for things like that. But what I said on the call was that I could make them belts out of decommissioned fire houses. <laughs> and wouldn't that be fantastic merchandise? Because this was a time that there was literally in the concert business, and this is what they said. They said, wow, that's, you know, this is amazing because we can't even get organic cotton t-shirts. You know, yeah, the world has changed dramatically. But at the time, we were literally the first company to ever offer a piece of green merchandise at a concert event and it was belts made out of fire hose we didn't know how to make them <laughs> they ordered a thousand and i think they needed them in three weeks so that night elvis and i were like well we've got to learn how to make belts faster so we started cutting them with kitchen scissors and i think maybe by the end by the next morning i'd cut two elvis had cut six or seven neither of us could move our hands anymore they were claws because we'd been sort of hacking through this four mil industrial rubber with kitchen scissors and i called them back and said look i can't do a thousand belts but i can do 500 <laughs> and elvis was I'm still sure like elvis how are we doing this 
So we did loads of, again, we just went out into the world and tried to find equipment to help. We found basically a pizza cutter, an electric pizza cutter that could chew through the hose and cut it much faster. We had to clean all of it in a bathtub. We had to find a buckle supplier. We had to do all of this in super quick time, delivered the belts, and then all the belts sold. I think the biggest thing, you know, who cares about the trauma of making them? And it was a trauma. It was three weeks with absolutely no sleep. But them selling... Uh, was just a revelation because who buys a belt at a concert? It's a weird thing to buy. Mo Gaudat's life was reshaped by a tragedy that set him on a mission to make people happy. Hear how he harnessed his grief to create the One Billion Happy movement and spread joy across the world. Do you think it's possible to find a purpose in, in any job, no matter how mundane it is? Because I guess it's one thing being a an exec at Google X or, or, or you know, the, the, the sexier jobs that are out there. Are there, are there particular conditions that need to be met or, or, or can you find purpose anywhere? I don't know if my answer will be the answer you want. I don't think you can ever find purpose. And allow me to come back to that in a second. Uh, I think you can find micro purpose and joy in everything you do, including cleaning the dishes. Okay. What do I mean by that? If you imagine that life is not about the future, which is the very Western way of looking at life, it's, you know, we're constantly planning for tomorrow and and 10 years away. Okay. If you imagine that life is just about now, then the purpose of cleaning the dishes is to do it as best as you can and enjoy yourself. Okay, that's it's, it's as simple as that. Hmm? If there are others in your life, then the purpose may extend a little bit too so that they have clean dishes when they need them, right? And you can take that simple task and do it with so much dedication and, and purpose hmm? that this simple task becomes your flow, it becomes your purpose, it becomes your, your, uh, your reward in life, okay? And then you put the dishes down and you turn to the right to make a coffee and that coffee can become your new purpose. Now, let's talk about the big purpose, the big Western productized view of purpose. When I say productized, it's because, you know, we always set purpose as a point in the future. But once again, if time is now, you need to start telling yourself, and how do I chase that? How do I? So I have one billion happy. I don't want to call this a purpose. I want to call it an ambition. Okay. Now that ambition is really interesting because it motivates me. It directionally puts me in a certain direction when I wake up in the morning. I, I, I'm also the CEO of a very highly advanced technological startup, but you know, I split my life between them somehow and I have that purpose. Hmm? The interesting side is when I taught one billion, uh, sorry, Solve for Happy, after I wrote the book, when I wrote Solve for Happy the first time, you know, I, when I spoke about it publicly the first time, it was in Hong Kong Technical University. Uh, it was the second time, sorry. I spoke about it in Stanford, uh, taught uh, nine lectures that are actually all available on online, uh, nine hours. And then I taught uh, in Hong Kong Technical University. And after uh, the session, a, a sage-like woman came to me and she approached me and said, I just want you to know uh, something. And I said, what? And she said, uh, you didn't choose this. You were chosen for this. Okay. And then she left. Right. And I, and I completely stood there like, hold on, hold on. And you know, there are others I'm talking to and she disappeared. Okay. And I remembered when my son, again, Ali, Ali was an amazing teacher. He came to me once when I was at Google X. Now I'm like this high muscle executive. I get everything done. I'm really good at this shit. Right. And you know, Ali walks to me one day and he goes, Papa, 
I just want you to know something. You're never going to fix the world. And I was like, why Ali? Why, why don't you have the spark? You know, why don't you want to make a difference? You know? And he said, Papa, I don't want to upset you. You're never going to change the world. The only thing you can change is your little world. And when you do that, well, your little world will be expanded for you. The only thing you can do is affect yourself. And then when you affect yourself, you can have the right to talk to me and my sister and mommy. And when you talk to us really well, you can expand that to the rest of your family, then your department at work, then maybe your company, then maybe your country, then maybe to the whole wide world. Right. And when you really look at everything I've ever done in my life, that's been true. Hmm? I, I didn't choose one billion happy. Ali died and I had to write the book. I didn't, that was my, not, not my conscious choice. If you had asked me one day before Ali died, I would have told you my purpose in life is to empower startups uh, from outside the United States to become as big as Google. That was my story that I told myself. Look at where I am now. Life chose for me a different purpose. And that different purpose, believe it or not, matches me so much better. And every day I do it, it becomes bigger. So every day I do it, my followers grow. Every day I do it, I get more invitations to meet others. My little world is expanding from me and Ali working on happiness to tens of millions of people, right? And maybe, maybe we should lose the arrogance of I am capable of finding that purpose. Maybe we should remember that gamers are all about honing on their craft, being so good at something that life goes like, yeah, that gamer is, is ready. That mm. gamer should be given the task, okay, of changing something in the world. That's when purpose starts to show. You don't choose your life purpose. I think your life's purpose finds you. It chooses you. Rachel Crook is transforming the caregiving sector through her lifted platform. Here she discusses how it is proving a better deal for caregivers and more support for families accessing services for their loved ones. Just when I was in Oxford doing my master's, my mum was diagnosed with early onset dementia. And I think I said right at the start, she was a senior civil servant. You know, she was a role model that I looked up to a lot as a, as a career woman. She went to Cambridge. She was, you know, she was smart and she was erudite. And I say she was, and she's still alive, but her, the conditions progressed in lots of ways. And I really struggled with that. And it was a really, and it still is a really difficult thing in my life. And we tried to do it as a family kind of from the get-go, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that we were going to need to get some professional care. And I just find the whole experience deeply frustrating. I think in particular, three things. One was a lack of control and transparency. You know, I was used to using my phone to order an Uber or kind of order a takeaway, but I couldn't get my phone out and read about my mum's carer, which just didn't make any sense to me. And the carers themselves, you know, I, I talked before about how passionate I am about trying to help people who often are kind of excluded and carers themselves get a rubbish deal. Um, mm. You know, there are 2 million care workers in the country, but 80% of them report being close to burnout. You know, the vast majority are paid less than living wage and some are even paid less than the minimum wage unlawfully. And so I really felt strongly that if I was trusting these people to support my mum and I was so grateful to them, then they deserve better conditions. And the third thing was, was data. You know, when carers are supporting someone, they are able to access a huge amount of really valuable information in someone's home that is not being used. 
Um, and so I put that together and, and I was thinking for a while, you know, care needs to be better. And then I was lucky enough to meet some guys who had started a venture builder. So they were working with corporates to think about different ideas. And they had started thinking about work in the home care sector and they'd incorporated a company. So I didn't, I wasn't kind of initially incorporating it. So I guess I got a head start in that sense. And I joined them and we created Lifted and we're a tech enabled home care company. So we look after older and vulnerable people and we use our technology to give families that transparency and to improve working conditions for carers. And more broadly, we want our platform to be something that supports people right from the first point where their loved one's health starts to change through to their end of life. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a massive, massive market in the UK and abroad in terms of creating that transformation. So it's commercially attractive. But for us, it's also about trying to improve the quality of life. So, you know, our, our apps give people information about carers before they come. They're able to understand what the carer is getting up to. We encourage our carers to show the joy of what they're doing, as well as kind of the mechanical stuff that someone does as a carer. And yes, it's hugely meaningful. I mean, we've, we've been in business 18 months. We've grown very quickly. So we've now got 20 people in our head office team and about 70, 80 carers that we directly employ. And Touchwood's only five star reviews. So many people have so much potential waiting to be unleashed. And that's why Sophie Edelman co-founded White Hat, now known as Multiverse. Hear how she got the tech startup that provides apprenticeship programs off the ground. Coming on to White Hat then, for those of our listeners that don't know what White Hat is or what you guys do, can you tell us a bit about what led you and your co-founder Ewan to start the business? Yes. So White Hat is founded on a mission to create a diverse group of future leaders. This goes back to this point that, you know, we both believe deeply that we need to create access to opportunity, want to level the playing field and give people the ability to go and work in the best companies in the world, whether they go down an academic path or a non-academic path. And for us, the, the way to achieve that is to build an alternative to university that is truly outstanding. And we think apprenticeships can be the mechanism to do that. So White Hat is a tech startup building this outstanding alternative to university, which starts with apprenticeships. And apprenticeships are, for those of you who don't know, it's a long duration training and skills-based learning program, so applied learning, that you do whilst you're employed. And so you get paid while you're doing it, you get great work-based skills, you get a brand on your CV, and you're getting trained at the same time. And many of us have been through jobs where we've had a de facto apprenticeship, right? Uh, most people's jobs are learnt on the job. And so an apprenticeship gives you a more structured way to develop that and get a credential at the same time. Brilliant. I'm interested. How did that come about in the first instance? That Did, did you guys just meet in uh, randomly? Did you just Pretty randomly. A, oh, right. Pretty randomly. So Ewan had been working in a business that was helping long-term unemployed get into work and felt that there was an opportunity to try and get people better outcomes than just, say, temporary employment. And then the apprenticeship levy was announced, and there was this kind of push to create more of a, an apprenticeship structure within the UK system. I came across apprenticeships because actually my husband's German, and he did an apprenticeship. And so that planted the seed for me about how the apprenticeship route can make people really successful without necessarily going down the academic route, or that you could create an equally good system that you could pass back and forth between. But my time in recruitment also showed me that a university has become this credential that people latch onto as an indication of someone's potential. And so there was all these ideas that were milling around. And then you and I were actually introduced by his wife, Suzanne. She saw me speaking at an event and said, oh, can I connect you to my husband? Because he's talking about these ideas too. We met in a coffee shop. I just thought, okay, I'll give him half an hour of my time. 
So, I was, you know, he was interested in the tech world. And uh, a half hour coffee actually spiraled into sort of a three hour session where we were sort of drawing all over the table. Well, not actually on the table, but <laughs> on pieces of paper on the table. And that's where the idea for White Hat was born, which is how do we how do we build something that's truly aspirational and that can change the system? It's a brilliant mission and clearly meant to be that random yeah. coffee that turned into a, a, an incredible business that you've created. And I guess in a relatively short amount of time, you've already worked with over 120 companies. I know that some of your clients include Facebook, Google, Zoopla, amazing brands. So in those early days when you were getting the business off the ground, and I think it's safe to say maybe there would have been some skepticism about the apprenticeship model. How did you go about approaching those types of big businesses to work with you in the early days? The great news right now is that all companies are having problems around skills gaps, diversity, churn of, of graduates. They're all having these problems. So we could actually latch on to the value that an apprentice can bring. So generally apprentices, when they join as career starters, stay for on average four years, whereas a graduate normally leaves after 18 months or two years. So we could talk about the value of, of bringing an apprentice in, in that regard. Secondly, the kind of people who go to universities tend to come from, you know, a smaller pool, something like 60% of people on graduate schemes went to private school in the UK. So, you know, you, you've got this funnel of the same kind of candidate going into businesses. And so if you're trying to solve the diversity problem, you've got to fish out of a different pool. And skills, we already know that the jobs of the future are going to look very different from those today. And people are going to need to develop new skills, be reskilled throughout their career. And lots of companies are grappling with that issue. And then you throw in Brexit and suddenly you start thinking, oh, well, if we can't bring talent in from outside the UK, how are we going to grow that talent in the UK? So all these kind of macro trends came together. And when we started talking to the boards and C-level at organizations, we were able to talk about the problems that they were really grappling with and present apprenticeships as a solution to that problem. Mentoring changes lives, but it's not part of the school experience for many young people. Henry Faber and Walter Kerr are changing that with Oppidan. Here they discuss how they're helping pupils make the most of their potential. What led the two of you to launch Oppidan then? And can you explain to the listeners what the business does? Yeah, so I think to start any business, there are two things you need. One is to be personally passionate about the product you're selling. Um, so with us, I guess that's education. And the second one is when you understand the inefficiencies of the market you're going into, or rather have a differing attitude to the incumbent of that market. So that led us to set up Oppidan on the back of working in the tuition space for, as we said, 18 months and thinking there was a space for us to do something slightly different. I think the, the layman bit to that as well is that we, we kept seeing each other at social events and we clearly were sharing the same experiences. Mm -hmm working for different people and the same people actually, but there was a lot of laughing about kind of slight inadequacies, although not to point fingers, but, but more just a general enjoyment of the sector and working with kids that we clearly shared. And so no one really said, oh, let's do a business that just sort of felt like the obvious thing to do. Great. Um, in a nutshell, what is it Oppidan does? So Oppidan is a mentoring company and that for us is a more personalized, uh, personality driven form of education, which we see as disruptive and innovative in the space that we're in. We do three key things. We work one-on-one -on -one with families around London primarily, but also the rest of the UK and internationally as well. We work in schools where we go and see groups and whole year groups in both the independent and state sectors. 
And then we have a camp business, Operating Camps, which runs residential summer camps and school trips for children in years four to eight, so right. eight to 13. Brilliant. Um, well, given the name of this podcast and what Operating does, it's clear that we all share a, a belief in the importance of mentorship. Interested in whether you both have mentors and, and if so, sort of how did you find them? How have they helped your career thus far? And you took this one. Okay. So, well, I, I was thinking about this on the way here. There's sort of four really, because I have a, a father and a stepfather who are both very influential for me. And that's, that sounds cruel to my mum, my stepmom. <laughs> but I guess those kind of male figures have always been, and they're very different and they've both given me a huge amount along the way. But also I had a housemaster at school and a, and a drama teacher who kind of inspired me to head down that route initially. And they were both, I think the, the key thing is they both treated me like an adult from a very early age, which infers a lot of the way we do things. And that kind of maturity and sense of authority over what I was doing was really important. And feeling like I was a, an equal rather than a student was a, was a big factor for me. That's really, I, you can really tell from the, the website, some of the testimonials you guys have that it's very empowering, the, the mentorship. And, and it's that whole being treated like an adult. I think there's a yeah. lot in that. Uh, what, about, what about you, Walter? Yeah, I mean, um, of course, parents were hugely helpful in my development. We well, do have to say that, don't we? we? Do. Me too, Dad. <laughs> listening. Of course they were. But the, the part of the reason why we started this business initially is that um, the role of a mentor exists in all walks of life, in sport, in music, law, any industry really. But the formalization of that role doesn't yet exist in education. So we wanted to set up that, I suppose, to fill the gap in our own small way. Because I personally would have loved having someone who was forgive the marketing line, old enough to authorize, be young enough to associate with, mm. growing up age 14, 15, going through the natural rhythm of adolescence and thinking, I've absolutely no idea what I'm doing, mm. sleepwalking through school. So I think having that formal role would have been helpful, despite all the support I was getting at home. Mm. Interesting. I think we found, even from just launching this podcast, um, so many people have reached out going, oh, this, yes, we, mentorship is so important. And a lot of people struggle whether it's the confidence to go out and find one, but we found a lot of people going, I really want one, but I don't quite know how to get one. And I'm pleased to say that people have been listening to this and hopefully getting some mentorship uh, from, from the episodes thus far. What advice would you give those listeners who are looking to get a mentor or mentorship? Are there particular things you'd recommend? Experience within the particular uh, remit you're going into is one. Um, but it can be anyone. You know, when you leave the pub and you feel like, full of like beans because you've had an epic chat with a friend who's perhaps a year or two ahead of you, but who really is just a mate and you feel like, you know, you want to go and conquer the world. Just that association is, 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 is awesome. So it doesn't have to be, you know, finding a specific mentor and it's a personality approach. So one thing may work for someone else. I think mentorship for us as a, as a partnership has been having people who are far more experienced than us, who've given us their time and that can be short term for an hour or it could be regular. We have a few people who we speak to quite often and those mentors take totally different forms. They have totally different experiences. Often we listen to their advice and then don't act upon it. But just being open-minded to other people's experiences, I think, and not being locked into your own, just your own targets and goals. Yeah. If anyone knows how to reduce your carbon footprint, then it's Juliet Davenport, the brains behind green energy supplier, Good Energy. Listen to her tips on how we can all make small changes that have a big impact. So I think if you think about the key areas that we interface with emissions, so, so one is in your home, 
So what can you do in your home straight off? And you use energy. So make sure you, if, if you're using energy, use green energy and use green energy from a real green supplier like good. Obviously, if you want to, if you want to go further than that, you can install solar panels or you can start thinking about heat pumps. So, so there's a kind of, there's a stage one and a stage two. Also make sure you've got as much energy efficiency as possible. So if you've got leaky windows, sort those out, put some insulation <laughs> yeah. in, et cetera. The next thing is, so that's where I live in a sense. So I kind of, the living piece. Then the next one is how do I travel? How do I get from one place to the other? So sort of walk, cycle, public transport. But if you can't do those three, then if you're going to get in a car, try and make sure it's an EV. Because that's, there is now a wide range of EVs available. They're fantastic to drive. They're really simple to charge at home. Everything's becoming much easier so I think that would be the transport piece. And then finally, what you eat. So again, limit what you waste. There's something like waste food worldwide is, is the same emissions as a small country. And it's massive. So let's let's not waste the stuff we spend hours, days sort of making. So that that's sort of limit that. Limit meat and dairy. So take that down. doesn't mean you have to get rid of it completely, but use it as a treat rather than as an everyday necessity. And eat local and organic. So kind of where you live, what you eat and how you get places, I think are the three really practical places you can start. Do you know what nutrients keep your mind healthy? Find out by listening to Dan Murray Serta, founder of the supplement provider Heights, as he gives the lowdown on the best food for your brain. The journey very quickly started when I got insomnia about three years ago, and I had it for about six months. I basically couldn't go to sleep. But, you know, when I could, I would go to sleep about midnight, and I'd wake up at 2 a.m. every single night on repeat for six months. You know, after trying therapy and sleep therapy and, you know, all sorts of, like, everything you can imagine, I ended up going to see a dietitian who recommended me three supplements, which I was surprised by, but they were DHA omega-3s, vitamin complex and blueberry extract which is an antioxidant and i was kind of blown away by the simplicity of her suggestions it didn't seem like what i thought she was going to suggest to me but regardless i took them within two weeks i slept like a baby Uh, my anxiety had gone away i was really surprised one of the things that i learned from this experience was all of those ingredients exist in nature and Mm. ultimately they have reams of science around how they can impact our our mental well-being. Now, in my personal case, I'd gone completely plant-based about a year and a half before this. And one of the common things we're learning in society at the moment for people that are going plant-based, vegetarian, flexitarian, whatever it is, when you cut things out your diet, you need to put them back in. doesn't matter what game changers say. It is an irresponsible message. I say this as someone who is literally one of those people. So, you know, you can only really speak from experience here. Much like everyone knows about the B12 argument, the DHA omega-3 argument is very, very important too because your brain is made of 60% fat. 90% of that fat is a compound called DHA. It is the number one building block of your entire brain. And so looking at the brain as a holistic organ, it's very simple to say what are the four things your brain needs? It's, It's sleep, hydration, nutrition, and oxygen. If you try and look at what makes a healthy mind, we could be here all day. There's a million things that make a healthy mind, but a healthy physiological organ needs balance on those things. So if you're completely dehydrated, you're going to feel sleepy, feel like shit, you will will make yourself sick, like fundamentally. Yeah. Um, 
Same thing if you have a real big nutritional imbalance. And that is something that, you know, the dietitian at the time said to me, she's seeing loads more in her clinic because people don't understand that when they remove fish, which is generally where you get DHA from, now fish get it from algae. So the thing is actually the most sustainable source is from algae, but algae is seaweed. Not many people eat seaweed every day, right? And the other place to get it in a plant-based diet is flaxseed. Again, you need about a kilo of that. So people don't really do it. So the reality is we like looked at the science of what yeah. natural nutrients go into feeding a healthy brain. And there's essentially you know, a lot of different ingredients. But the point being, we like, why don't we put these together? Why don't we figure out how to put these together into a product that is like the highest quality, most bioavailable? I mean, I learned so much about supplements, just not, not yeah, coming yeah. in from the industry and being a skeptic. And one of the things we learned was, you know, about the pill, you know, most come in a shit pill, basically doesn't, you know, just all goes down in one. We work with a patented capsule manufacturer that essentially dual releases the nutrients into your gut. So we have oil on the outside and nutrients on the inside and they slow release into your gut, which means you can mm -hmm. take it first thing in the morning without food if you want to. You can take it with food or without. And it will slow release the, the nutrients into your gut. And the most important thing for that isn't necessarily the quality of the ingredients or the release mechanism. It's building a habit. So mm -hmm. most people that take supplements because it's hard to feel a difference, most people will just you know, get out the habit. It's understandable. Of course they will. Mm. Our thing is like, can we find a time in the day? Can we start people with a healthy habit? And by having the pill this way and a bottle that's been completely bespoke designed and fully biodegradable out of packaging and, you know, it's been nominated for a bunch of design awards, but very happy to say it's been designed to sit on your bedside table. So that when you wake Brilliant. up, you think of heights and you think of starting your day, looking after your brain's health and cognitive potential, that daily habit for us, is the platform from which you can start to build more healthy habits because mm -hmm. like our company purpose or belief, if you will, is a healthier brain leads to a happier life. Yeah. So what that really means is if you have more healthy habits than bad ones, you will ultimately be healthier and happier. From the music business to restaurants to social enterprises, the multi-skilled Martin Alan Morales has enjoyed success in everything he's turned his hand to. Here he discusses how his life experiences have influenced his career. As I said, they are the result of lived experience. And, you know, when you have lived experience uh, and challenges that personally affect you, you can't just let them lie. They, you mm -hmm. have to change the way people act and the way people think and the way society is going. You have to do it in a small way or a big way. And I, frankly... You know, changing something that happens in my local neighborhood is, is as important as trying to change a bigger problem like, like poverty alleviation or, or homelessness. So uh, I, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, to Big Issue Invest, to, to Recovery Focus, to uh, Future Fit Foundation, to Impact Hub, to many other organizations that I'm working with to give me the opportunity to add that change I want to see and to join their teams in, in proactively, you know, changing things that, uh, that affect us all and particularly affect vulnerable community and vulnerable people. We are all vulnerable. We are all just, you know, skin and bones and vulnerability can be poked and prodded and, and broken anytime. And this pandemic has shown that. So I hope that others who, who are the tough guys in this world and the brutes and the bullies have also had their vulnerabilities shuffled so that they can you know, think of others and be selfless in what they do. But I do this because I want to live a selfless life 
I follow my own spirituality uh, and a variety of religions that that I, I that are important to me, and I try to to do what I can whilst I'm here. I want to leave a legacy. I think I've done that a little bit in the books and the and the, and the meals that I've served and things like that, but also in the way I've brought smiles and happiness and, and helped people throughout their lives or at particular moments of their lives. And that's because I have been blessed uh, to have received that kindness from others as well. Uh, and I never forget that I could have, my mother could have not married my English father and given us that opportunity of education. And I could have been born just in the middle of the Andes in a little straw hut mm. with no access to education or even running water. And I could be still there right now. So I never forget that. To round up today's episode, we hear again from JBM board advisor, Cressy Westling, CBE, on her advice for anyone looking to start their own mission-driven business and how making money and doing good aren't mutually exclusive. I think one of the things that has always stood out for me with Elvis and Cressy is is the mission and the fact that 50% of your profits from sales are donated to charities associated with waste, which is is amazing. And I don't think I've ever heard any other business in the world do that. Many people think that making money and doing good can't go hand in hand, but you've successfully achieved both and developed a thriving business that also delivers on that social mission. So how have you done that? And what advice would you give to others who are looking to balance these drivers in their own business? So it was relatively easy for us because we were starting something from nothing. I think this is incredibly difficult for businesses that already exist, that are have a legacy, that have shareholders. When you're setting out from day one, The one beautiful thing about a private limited company is that as long as you make enough money to keep the doors open, you can do whatever you want, you know, as long as it's legal. And actually, in the case of some companies, they can do things that are illegal and still, you know, maintain (laughs) uh, staying open. So I always knew that from my days in the VC, that was the one thing that I learned was the power of business. You didn't have to compromise if you didn't want to, as long as you could survive. So for me, you know, you know, financial metric of success is, is absolutely meaningless. I care that we are open and I care that we're growing the impact, but that's about it. You know, so the, the financial side is like WD-40. You've got to be good at it. You've got to watch it. You've got to make sure it's looking after itself, but you can't be motivated by it. Because what's the point in that? I've never found an interest or a driver for money interesting in anyone else either. I don't, I don't think it's a, a great trait of, you know, modern urban man, let's say. So if you're setting up a business from scratch, you can write these rules for yourself. And we immediately, we had started with this rescue mission. So that was the thing we started with. We, we started by wanting to be problem solvers. And it wasn't like a made-up problem. It was a true problem. I wasn't trying to save people five seconds in an airline queue. We were trying to really take something that was going into the ground and give it a second life. And then... Because we were in the luxury space, we got to play with all of these other things. You know, we got to make our own packaging from waste. We, we decided to let that rescue mission run through the whole business. So it's not just the fire hose. It's our packaging. It's our lining materials. It's the workshop that we live in. It's the furniture that we designed. It's, it's how we run our life, rescue. And the second thing that we decided to do was really be about complete and total transformation. So it wasn't enough for us to, you know, you see a lot of upcycling and then what they've done is they've taken an old suitcase and flipped it on its side and called it a coffee table. But that's not what we're interested in doing. We're interested in completely changing the paradigm. Green products have failed for a long time because 
People bought them just because they were green and they didn't really expect them to perform. And that meant that they never won over the general market. So we didn't want to make, you know, scratchy t-shirts that nobody wanted to wear. We wanted the belts that we wanted to make. We wanted to make the best belts in the world. The best belts for the world, of course, but the best belts in the world too. So that's what transformation is about to us. And then giving the, the money away, that was a snap decision. You meet people from the fire service and you decide, I'm giving them half the money because they should have half the money. So that's the DNA from day one. And if that's your DNA, then doing anything that's not good means you're turning your back on, on that. So, of course, we have to pay people well. Because I'm not going to have an environmentally successful business if I'm then going to turn around and be exploitative. You know, in the fashion industry, it's rife with unpaid interns and people doing year-long work experience and Shopping, having to, you know, pay for their travel and their lunch. I mean, we're not doing that because that's inappropriate way for any company to behave, particularly one in our industry. Also, you know, we have to challenge things like the seasons. You have to look at the, we're in an industry that has structurally failed. It, its processes, its pace, and the raw materials it uses are all destroying the environment. So, why would we follow any of those rules? We decide to not do seasons. We decide to manufacture really slow. We decide to never, ever, ever make huge batches of anything that we know we can't sell. We don't do any discounts because that just means that you've got an excuse to overstock and overproduce and then have waste at the end. You know, there's so many things that you look at the industry and think that's insane, that's insane, that's insane. And you don't, your, your immediate reaction as starting a business shouldn't be, yeah, but I have to copy these titans. It should be like, no, they're wrong. I'm going to do it a different way. Especially if you morally feel that they're wrong. And we morally feel that they're wrong. So I think it's relatively easy for us to have done this from day one. Also, we didn't go out and raise money. We literally started this business in the bedroom of a house share in Brixton, cleaning fire hose in a bathtub. We didn't go out and raise money and then have people who were just wanting us to get a profit result. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.